Welcome, good to have you all with us. Um, and we're using these mics today because this is being recorded, and it will be up on podcast Monday afternoon, which you can find just by going to the podcast and Googling it or hitting steinershow.org or Everyman Theater, and the podcast will be there, so they'll be up on Monday. Um, and when we get to the point where we're going to really invite people to get into this conversation with us with your thoughts and questions, the panel will respond, then I will come to you or meet you somewhere out here. And, um, and I, this is not a matter of complete control, but I will hold the mic. <laughs> and I will hold the mic for a couple of reasons, one of those being that I want to control the sound so we get the right sound uh, so you can't just pop up and go, why want to just, we'll get to you. Um, so let me introduce the panel, start with that, and then we'll leap in, launch into this. Um, and it's a pleasure to have you all here. This has been, these have been great. This is our first of the season. So our, what is this, our fourth season? Fourth season doing this, and this has been really remarkable. Each one has been very different. So to my immediate right is Corey Diacchino, who is an actor, writer, artist, third culture individual, uh, and she graduated from the Towson Theatre Department, and she has an incredible blog called I Am Not a Ninja. <laughs> it's, it's launching. Like it's launching. At the end of uh, September. So. Um, and uh, so she joins us here, and you can go to CoreyDiacchino.com for more about her. Next to her is Dr. Desiree Rowe, who is an assistant professor in communication studies at Towson University. Uh, and uh, she is works, as it says in here, with the intersections of queer performance, ethnography, and feminist rhetorical perspectives in popular culture, which is kind of key to everything we're wrestling with today at the center of it. So it's good to have Desiree here. And next to Desiree is Gavin Colby Herbert, who uh, is originally from New Orleans, which is why he's not Herbert, <laughs> um, as it should be. Uh, and has performed as a summer night since as summer night since 2001, which we'll talk a bit about. Uh, traveled the country doing these performances um, as one of our nation's top female impersonators. Uh, and uh, just can tell from our quick moment together that he's got a lot to say and a very deep thinking, quick wit. And um, he is also in a makeup artist, makes his living as a makeup artist uh, on TV and other places. And was just today helping people get ready for their wedding. So here we are, welcome. Good to have you all with us. Thank you. So there's so many places to begin because this play is really a controversial piece of work on a lot of levels. And it's controversy, controversial in terms of the notion of gender and gender bending and what we mean by gender and what the Western notions of gender are and what male notions of gender are, what our notions of gender are, how fluid are they? What are they, you know, how do we define that? The confusion around it for most people. It also has to do with the West and our imperial colonialist and racist attitudes towards Asia and Asian people. People, and, in, and, uh, and it, it raises a lot of hackles on a number of levels. I saw the play and I was enthralled by it, thought it was brilliant. Then I began hearing critiques especially from younger Asian people who were saying it was very difficult to listen to and to see. So this is a, it's a complex play. And David Wang is a very complex writer and thinker. Um, and so I think that that's part of what he wants is for us to, to deal with this confusion. Um, and so we're gonna start wrestling with these really 
difficult ideas right now and with you. Um, so let me just start. Um, and we had this as a conversation. Nobody gives speeches other than one I just gave. And, um, and, but, but Corey, let me just start. One of the things that we talked about in the very beginning as we walked in the, in the back, and, and that Brian Francois and I talked about a bit, was your discomfort with this play. And you're like the fourth or fifth person I've heard say this, but you said it in a really interesting way. Why don't you talk a bit about what this meant to you? Um, well, for me, when I watched it, I watched it about a week ago. Um, it was really hard to watch, especially the first act. Um, it's very blatant in its language towards women and specifically towards Asian women. And I guess for me, the reason why it was so uncomfortable to watch is because um, that sort of mentality towards Asian women is, is something that still exists. Um, it's something that I have experienced in my own life. Um, listening to the characters refer to Asian women like being dominated over, being submissive and enjoying it, that's actually stuff that I have heard in my own um, experiences as an Asian American woman. Um, so it was really difficult for me to watch and it took me a moment to realize that perhaps the reason why I was getting so angry is because this is something that's, it's not even just recent, it's something that's very current. Um, and also something that I know we were discussing too is because um, you know, rape culture is still something that's very prominent in our society. And that's something that I hear men say about women as a whole, not even just towards Asian women. Um, so yeah, for me it's very uncomfortable to watch also because a, a lot of times when I see um, characters who identify as I do as Asian or Asian American, and then I hear audience members laugh at a joke about that character. I don't always know if people are laughing because they're in on the joke or if they agree with the character, um, which is something that for me as an individual can be a little threatening and a little terrifying at the same time. So I know for me that was something that um, made me incredibly uncomfortable for that reason. And I think that one of the things we can maybe play with in a little bit is just what we talked about back there at the end, and, and what would we have done differently? <laughs> but we'll get to that later um, in, in this piece and how that was done. And one of the things I was thinking about, you know, just to pick up and continue on this, um, this way is, is, to, is, you know, I think that there's something about Western culture and quote unquote the other, mm -hmm. right? Um, if you look at what Shakespeare did around, or any other playwrights from that period and other periods in the 19th century around Jewish women, mm -hmm. or our own American preoccupation with the sexuality of black women, um, and submission, and more, and power, uh, or um, and, and and obviously from this play, mm -hmm. that that there's this uh, has always been from the colonial folks and from white folks in general. This this and people who aren't Asian, this fantasy about submission, this fantasy about what Asian women are, and so I mean, so, that, so I, I talk about what that root did to you in this play. Um, and I, I is it okay. Uh, what I think is most prominent here is in the show and in the writing, um, and I think for a moment we need to separate the script from the staging. I think that's also really important to do because the script was written in the mid-1980s and the staging was something that was a brainchild of the director of the show. So just to pause for a moment and think about the fetishization of Asian women um, and really queerness um, in the script itself, um, is interesting to talk about in response to taking something that was written in the mid-1980s, and a lot like what you were saying, 
is really relevant today. Um, when you have um, the President of the United States tweeting about how lots of his friends are making a lot of money in Africa, right? It's that same colonial notion that is relevant in, in the show. In Nambia. Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly, in Narnia. Um, uh, and so, <laughs> and, and you see that in how the two French men talk about Asian culture in the show. Um, and then also a little bit about queerness in the show. It, it sort of goes along the lines of what you were saying when um, both Song and the woman in the beginning are, are nude, is there, there's a level of discomfort in the audience. And for me, I was wondering, is that discomfort, especially with that last time when um, Song disrobes, is that discomfort in the audience with nudity itself? Is that discomfort in the audience with a discomfort with seeing queerness in that way and a queer body in that way? Um, are we laughing with the character or at the character? And I think that that's really a relevant, um, still really relevant point. And in terms of the staging and the production, perhaps we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, but does that get to, I hope that gets to a little bit of bridging the writing of the show from the mid-1980s to some really current, really relevant stuff today um, and why it can bring up these feelings that, that makes some folks a little uncomfortable about the questions of those intersections of identity um, and what they mean to especially um, younger audiences. I think that no matter, even though it was written in the 80s, I think that's one thing that Wang wanted was to create discomfort. Mm -hmm. But the question is what that discomfort means, as right. you were talking about earlier, right? Earlier, earlier, right? Yeah. Who's, who, who's uncomfortable and why? Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Gavin. Exactly, and um, I love that you brought the whole idea of Shakespeare and um, the whole idea of feminism and the idea of uncomfortableness with um, fluidity of gender. But um, as uh, female impersonators, you know, um, I, as Mark said, um, a lot of people don't understand that drag is actually an acronym. Um, it was an acronym that was created by Shakespeare that was written in the sidebars of a script that meant dress resembling a girl because women were not even allowed to be in public or to even be actors because of the mentality of a man. And that makes, and a lot of people don't get that nowadays, that the whole idea of this dominance, um, especially as a white male, um, is ridiculous to me. Not only that, so my job as an entertainer is to make you think. Um, my job is to um, make you think outside of your box. What norm for me may not necessarily be norm for you, but who's to tell you that your norm isn't correct? But what I truly enjoyed about it was the uncomfortableness. I got tears in my eyes because I, um, I've been part of the sex worker act. I've, I, can, I can identify um, with a geisha. I can identify with the queerness of it. I can identify of understanding and yearning to be wanted, but at the same time playing this character that truly is just a character, but it's not even my real self. Um, so I, I love that that whole part, and it kind of really just flowed. I, I love that, that how that actually went down the line, um, <laughs> how that all flowed, you know, really, really well. But, you know, I, um, I don't, 
how many of y'all knew that drag was actually an acronym? That, that yeah, I love it. <laughs> a lot of women didn't, correct? Right. Yeah. I mean, most people don't. I'll go ahead, Corey. Well, I was going to say, can I piggyback off that? Because I can't remember wh what exactly you said in that that made me think of this, but we were talking back there that context is everything, right? Mm -hmm. So I've been speaking to, um, I've been trying to get feedback from a lot of my friends, and specifically from my friends that identify as Asian or Asian American. And something that I think is very important to bring up is the fact that there is actually a difference between Asian culture and Asian identity and Asian American identity. And something that I started realizing was that I, as a, an Asian American was, I particularly was finding offense at this and, I, and speaking to other people who identified as Asian and realizing that they weren't as offended. And not to say that everyone who identifies as Asian as opposed to Asian American weren't getting offended, but it started making me wonder why. And I started wondering if, you know, that's something, and I've been thinking about this a lot, is that, you know, I think as a culture and also as an industry, Part of the reason why we have such a, a difficult time um, characterizing Asian identity is because we still don't know how to identify the difference mm -hmm. between Asian and Asian American cultures. And there is a difference. And even when you're Asian American, there's still a difference in how you identify. Like I identify as Asian American because I'm first and foremost an immigrant who was raised in America. But then there are first generation Asians who will identify as American in a very different way as I do. And then you bring in differing nationalities. Well, are you Filipino-American, Chinese-American, Cambodian-American? And all of that matters. And I think it's a lot of information to, for people to take in at any given moment. And how do you represent these characters? And I just think that, you know, especially in a play like this that's so complex, I think context is everything. And finding reasons why you're offended and, and even being able to identify that you're offended at all. I think that that's also and important. And we, and it's, it, I don't want to stay on this, but, but it's interesting what you just brought out. That I think that we, because we, because we are in America, and people come from all over, and you know, when I was a kid, when people called themselves a Heinz 57, <laughs> was the word people used to use, white people used, I mean they were German, Irish, mixed, blah, 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 right? So, but then, the other way to look at with American Americans look at anybody who comes from anywhere in Asia is Asian. They're not Filipino, they're not Japanese, they're not Chinese, not Vietnamese, they're not Cambodian, they're Asian, right? Or anybody who's from Africa is African. They're not Igbo, they're not, they're not Nigeria, they're not from Tanzania, they're African. We do that, right? Like Latino Americans, what the hell does that mean? Was it where they're from? <laughs> right? And so I mean that that I think that that's that's part of it. I, that is probably also wrapped up in the question of how one self-identifies and trying to figure that out. I mean, from the Asian perspective, for one of a better term. Right. Yeah. I'm still, I'm still thinking about that too. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, so I'm curious how you think that that whenever David Wang writes something, not to hang up on David Wang because it's not just about him. This is about what the play brings out, but the interplay between the parts, the interplay, the interplay within the play between gender and race and how they kind of feed each other. I really, I mean, that's something we don't see people talk a lot about in this play, which they should, because I really think that was in the back of his head. I think people in the 1980s maybe think differently than people do in 2017. There's always growth and change, right? So what about that interplay? Between, between race and gender uh, bending in this play? Mm. So 
I, I feel that something was actually said in the play, and it said only a man knows how a woman is supposed to act. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, only a man would be dumb enough to say such <laughs> <does> a <laughs> stupid <laughs> thing. Um, you know, and that's the thing is uh, people have this self-absorbed narcissistic view of that that they're superior to anyone else and it's just like that whole talking about race you know that joke air quotes um, they all look alike mm -hmm. well no um, uh, you know I'm married to a Puerto Rican and everybody thinks he's Mexican you know just because he has dark hair and speaks with you know rolling his R's that I can't do but <laughs> Um, <laughs> but the thing is, is what I don't understand is where that narcissistic view, where, where did it come from? You know, what people don't get is that we're, we're all immigrants. We all got here from somebody else, you know, and what gives you the power or the right to even come up with this conception that you know the way that somebody's supposed to act, you know, that just, or be even. And I think, too, um, it's this notion of disciplining someone until they understand the rules of that performance, yeah. right? So disciplining someone until they understand the rules of how to perform womanliness or femininity. Right. Um, I mean, it starts uh, with children. Um, you tell a little girl who's sitting in her kindergarten classroom, don't sit like that, that's not ladylike. Um, and she begins to understand the rules of what it's like to perform that gender. Um, and it's not just gender, it's not just race, it's sexuality, it's social class, it's ableism. It's sort of all of those intersectional markers of identity. And I think for the, um, to bring it back to the show, I think that our playwright was attempting to question a little bit some of those performances um, when the at the very end of the show, how could you not have known, right? How could you not have known that this performance was going on for so long? Um, and it was this sort of incredulous questioning about disciplining a body um, and what that performance um, should have been, should not have been, and why we couldn't, why you couldn't recognize it, what is wrong with you? Um, when it sort of goes against, I think what you were talking about, the fluidity of the conversation and the fluidity of sex, sexuality, um, and I think that that's a really interesting point of intersection uh, that the show pulls together, is the performances that we embody every day, these learned behaviors that are masks that are difficult for any of us to pull off. Yeah, and I, I think also it's so, it's so funny because um, I actually received a really eloquent email from a friend of mine earlier today that actually was touching on just that, and I'm not even going to try to rephrase what he was saying, but... Um, Essentially, what he was communicating to me was kind of this whole idea of the other and a, a performance, you know, how we need, I guess, the opposite to sort of define mm -hmm. what we are. Mm -hmm. um, again, he wrote it way more eloquently than I did. But um, just this idea of, you know, everyone's performing to some degree. Yeah. And I've had this discussion with friends on... Um, separate occasions of how much of myself is my authentic self and how much is actually something that plays to a projection that I know somebody else has of who I am. Mm -hmm. and, and that's really just such a, a complex question that I don't think anyone would ever really find an answer to because I think to some degree, a lot of who we are isn't always authentic. And that's a hard thing to sort of accept is that 
you know, I as an Asian American woman mm -hmm. um, play to these stereotypes to some degree or, mm -hmm. you know, almost to protect myself or to appease somebody else who might think less than I, uh, less of me. Um, and also, um, I, I had this really in interesting conversation with someone about, I don't know how much of this is true, I actually have to do more research on this, but he was saying that um, part of the history of some Chinatowns in America was that um, we were putting on a show um, because we already had, we already knew what um, American culture saw of us as Asians, and particularly um, Chinese culture. And so the idea of Chinatown was to sort of like put that on. I don't don't quote me on that. I don't know how much of that is actually true, but I actually am not surprised if it was. Mm -hmm. And it just sort of reinforces this idea of well, like do we? It's it's kind of like a never-ending circle, right? Yeah, I mean, who is the authentic self? Is it the person in the front of the stage or is it the person in the back of the stage? Um, and who do we let backstage? Yeah. Um, and who sees us behind the rules that govern and discipline our bodies? Um, and who do we judge if we see backstage? I think that's an apt metaphor. <laughs> it's uh, both for the show and life. I mean, could we say that in some ways that what this play was wrestling with us, has us wrestled with, is what authenticity means. Yeah, right. Is there such a thing as it? We don't even know what it means, yeah. is maybe what Wang is saying. It's like what I, what I ask people all the time to you know, define normality for me. Mm. Right. You know, um, exactly, right? So um, we, we all come from different, um, different parents, different backgrounds, different um, ideologies. Um, and oftentimes we sit there and we discredit someone because they're not like us. Um, and that is so relevant and we sit there and act as though that we're superior to them because they don't have the same upbringing as we are. People think that I'm ignorant because I'm from the South. You know, it's that same mentality. Not only that, I'm gay, you know, but I, you know, it's, I have a master's degree. I went to independent Southern Baptist High School, and I graduated from George Washington University. I still sit there, and I'm just as smart, and I played with your kids, you know? It just so <laughs> happens that I decided to take a different route, and um, now I get to go and travel the country and make people think outside of their box. My job as an entertainer is to not give you everything. And uh, an illusion, per se, it's not what you see, it's what you don't that makes mm -hmm. the illusion. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, we hide so much of ourselves. And another thing that I love what they said is that he was actually in love with a woman that was actually created by a man. And that, you know, I say that every Sunday. I, I host a drag brunch in D.C., and I said, um, you know, I have my mother's features, but my daddy's fixtures. <laughs> you know, and um, you know, and uh, you know, and it makes those people think. You know, what in the hell are you? You know, but you know, that's my ultimate goal is to give get you onto the edge of your seat and to have you wanting to ask these type of questions because um, ignorance is only there if you don't ask questions. Were you going to say something, Corey? You look like you were. I mean, just piggybacking off of that, I think when when we don't dis when we don't agree with somebody else, it's so much easier to point at the differences right. rather than to try and find the similarities, right? Like, right. and I think that that's where the majority of arguments come from. You know, we don't see eye to eye, and it's probably because you're like this. Exactly. And I think that, I, and I I agree. You know, my role as an artist is to try and get people yes. to think outside of that box. But nobody can make you feel inferior unless you give them that power over you. Right. Mm -hmm. Period. 
So again, coming back to this notion of uncomfortableness, is there such a word? Is it uncomfortable? It is now. It is now, <laughs> yeah. So that, that all of the major characters in this play, it seemed to me, were wrestling with what and who they were. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? Everybody has their own demons. And, and what that identity means and how you identify and how you define yourself and living a lie, living a truth. I mean, that's why it's so, that's why I, I've been wrestling with this thing ever since uh, Brian, Francois over here, um, who talked to me about the women who he knew who walked out of the play, young Asian American women who walked out being very uncomfortable with what they saw and left, just couldn't watch anymore. And that the levels of, of discomfort, which probably is the word to use, <laughs> un uncomfortableness, <laughs> but discomfort, we'll take the, it. the levels of discomfort, um, is really important in a sense to figure out how to, f to find the, whatever the truth this is. Uh, you know, you don't agree. Uh, no. Go. Uh, and, so, and so I think that setting up this, and I probably will misquote you, but uh, okay. living a lie or living against, or living a truth or living against, that makes me really uncomfortable because that's a really black or white issue. It, it doesn't acknowledge for a lot of us the right. gray spaces in between. Um, where we can disidentify and uh, move between spaces. We can subvert but still be a part of. We can live within but live with, live against, um, all at the same time. And s the most poignant moment for me in the show was this mark of disidentification. And to cite the person, there's a person, Jose Esteban Munoz, who came up with this term disidentifications. I didn't, I didn't just think of it myself. <laughs> but um, to that moment where Song turns to the audience that very first time, it's really that mark of disidentification. I'm living in, with, and against all at the same time. And it's not living um, against or with a truth, it's living between truths. Right. Um, and I know at least for me and my, ex my personal life and who I am as a person, um, I exist in those gray areas. Um, and while, while sometimes I get pushed or pulled in different directions, um, I'm always moving through those with, for, and against. I like what you said, and I, I, I hate black and white. Um, as a makeup artist, I tell everybody every day, I don't live my life in black and white. I don't live my life by bullet points. I live my life in color. I don't even live my life in gray, you know, because I truly live my life in color, and I'm so proud of, of who I am and where I've come from and the struggles that I've gone through, but understanding that if I can speak about those things, it makes other people... Um, aware that these things are actually out there, and um, and it's un I, s I hate to say that it's unfortunate that people would walk out, you know, because I would like for them to sit there and to watch it and to give us their feedback and say, okay, well, this is why I felt that you know that sort of way. Don't don't leave that gray area. Show us the color, the really paint us the picture of how you truly felt. Yeah, and I, I think also, too, just the idea of living in between. I think um, I sincerely believe that everybody lives in between in, in one shape or form or another. And and I know for me, um, something that's in my bio is that I, I identify as a third culture individual. And um, touching on the topic of living as somebody in between, um, a third culture individual, um, the term was actually brought up to me a couple of years ago after I w went back home to the Philippines. 
And being an immigrant child, I always thought, oh man, like I don't belong in America. It's very clear that they don't want me here. I didn't want to be here. My parents made me get here. Like this is not where I belong. <laughs> and so it, it took me over 20 years to go back home. And I was like waiting for that moment to go back home. Oh my God, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to belong somewhere. And I didn't. And mm -hmm. that that huge kind of jolt out of my own kind of fantasy that I was gonna go back home and I was gonna feel like I belonged, it was a really startling thing and I had like a whole other identity crisis that I didn't think I was due for for like another like 20 years. <laughs> and um, and it, you know, it really, I had to grapple with that, you know? And then somebody told me, well, yeah, you're a third culture kid and I was like, oh my God, what is that? And, and I've, I've sort of clung to that ever since because, um, and I think it describes us really well, it's, you know, we're the people that live between these two opposing cultures and heritages that don't agree with one another and we somehow have to create our own culture to sort of reconcile that. And to some degree, I think that all of us do that. You know, we have our mothers and our fathers and these two families and they have to come together and we have to identify as, well, which part, you know? And I think to some degree, we all grapple with the in-between. And it doesn't matter if, we're talking about gender, it doesn't matter if we're talking about race or heritage or ethnicity. I think I think if, if we all were honest with ourselves and tried to talk about authenticity, I think what we would discover is that we're all stuck in between somewhere. Right. So Yeah, I think that and I and I just throw in here I agree with your disagreement. <laughs> <laughs> because I that wasn't I and I agree completely. I think that that, that you know existence is because I love Buddha and Marx. Is because their existence has to do with dialectics, right. and that it's not either or. It never has been either or. Which the problem is, you write a play like this, and we, we have to wrestle what's in there because we live in a world of either or, and it's not. Right. I think that's part of what we were witnessing here in this play is that does not exist, and you exactly. can exist in it, yeah. right? I I totally I love that you said that. It's 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 not just either or. There's there's more choices actually that you can do that. That you can that you can choose, and um, another thing, and I, like I I wrote notes the entire time, which was unlike me by any means necessary. But <laughs> one of the things that also was said is um, with we're struggling is we're we're most revolted by the things that are hidden deep within us, and um, at the end, you know, it's like it was so disgusting, but yet he wanted it so bad. And, um, but this is every day, you know, this is still going on. This is, um, you know, in the transgendered community, in the African-American community, you know, it's literally the whole DL concept. It's, it's, I mean, it's literally every single day, but have, it's like what my grandma told me, you always want what you can't have. And, um, you know, that's, it's just so eye-opening to me that, that, we truly are revolted by the things that truly live within us, the, that want or that desire, just because you're always curious. So uh, one of the things that, that, that struck me as we were talking, as you all were talking now, and um, thinking about some of the things we've touched on in, in behind the screen, um, was how, at least before you walked into the room, um, Gavin, that how you two, Desiree and Corey, were uncomfortable with the makeup scene mm -hmm. for different reasons, right. very different reasons. Mm -hmm. and, I, I, and, and, I, and as soon as they describe it, I'm dying for you to just leap into this, Gavin, since <laughs> you are a makeup man, and so I <laughs> and, and bring that in. But, so, but, but for very different reasons, what that represented to you mm -hmm. was complex, and I'm, I share that. 
She had the, that complexity. I mean, for me, Court. it was uncomfortable to watch because as that moment was happening, I literally turned to my friend and I went, oh my God, are they doing yellow face? <laughs> and it was, for me, and you know, again, this is something that has a whole lot of layers. Um, you know, I think for me, as an Asian American woman and, and an actor nonetheless, you know, it's, it's something that's actually relevant in the entertainment industry is constantly casting white actors to play these Asian characters. And as I'm sitting there watching that, I'm like, they're actually putting this on the stage and I can't watch this. I don't know how I feel. But then at the same time, I was like, but I get the symbolism behind it and I see what he was trying to do. And I, I get that, you know, the symbolism behind it was that this idea of M. Butterfly or Madama Butterfly was something that was in his own head and that he had to take on that persona in acknowledging himself that M. Butterfly exists because I created it yeah. and he needed to, you know, and, and the symbolism behind killing himself. Another friend brought up to me that maybe it's because he's so obsessed with this concept of Madama Butterfly that in his head a butterfly had to die and that butterfly was him and that's, it's symbolic in that sense. Mm -hmm. And also this idea of, well, what is East versus West? And you have that character of Song coming out in a Western suit and this idea of, well, yeah, because Asians don't dress like that on a 24-7 basis. We're, we're very much just as metropolitan as anybody else. Um, so, you know, and there I felt like this tug, you know, I am so repulsed by this, but I also see where he's going with it. And, and, and I think it's safe to say, I still don't know how I feel about it. Um, I, I mean, it, it does anger me, but I, I think the question for me is, well, why is it making me angry? And I'm, you know, I think I'll have to see it again, I think, to try and, and figure out how I feel about that. Yeah, I, to sort of piggyback off of that, it was interesting to me that one scene where you had the camera on the mirror and saw the makeup being taken off and projected above while Miles Davis is playing Kind of Blue. I thought that that was a really interesting choice. Um, and it was a choice to incorporate this uh, media element um, on a screen that we didn't know was there. Um, in the production of the show. And so this goes to that staging um, aspect I alluded to earlier was for this scene, um, I would have liked to have pushed those alienation effects, sort of bringing the audience into that backstage um, a little bit more in that scene to show us that um, the, the, the producer and the director recognize that this yellow face wasn't just for yellow face sake, it was a larger cultural commentary, that they understood uh, the conversation that could arise behind this, much like the taking off of the makeup with the camera embedded in the mirror, how clever that was um, to push these front stage, backstage borders a little bit, make them a little bit blurrier, right? Complicate the conversation in that way um, through staging, because you're not gonna rewrite the show, and that's in the script. Yeah. Um, but you can change the staging up a little bit um, to to complicate modern notions of what that means. Yeah. So, so um, <laughs> um, all my friends call me a crybaby because I cry at everything. But that really made me cry because it, um, especially when he's taking his makeup off in, in the vanity, um, because. Um, I, I host a dinner show, and it's illusion show, and I literally end every single show with what makes a man a man. Mm -hmm. And I s 
go out and I literally have every bit of rhinestones and everything that I possibly could have on, but then I literally de-robe completely naked in front of everyone and then dress as a boy. Um, and it just hit home to me so much that I was like, oh, wow, you know? Um, but it's um, it also shows... Um, the, the how beautiful it is at the same time where it is super controversial you know you know you clearly know that he's a man you know however getting to see um that true self that was behind it was so powerful to me that i yeah i it was it was gorgeous to me leave that over here about say something this way no no so i mean i think that's I think that's part and parcel what you have to wrestle with when you walk away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, it's really, I'm, I think, but thinking about this a lot, because I've only saw the play once. I wasn't really wasn't familiar with this play at all. Mm -hmm. uh, read it after, they, after, we, after, after we said we're doing this play, and, and I, I was thinking that it, part of it is taking off that makeup um, and the disrobing earlier had to do with we are never who we think we are. Sure. And you never know who I am, really. And you put us in these boxes, you know? And it's also part of that was like the, it was like clearly a critique of how Western society deals with gender mm. and how we deal with people who are not from the Western world. And really kind of Putting it, you know, saying this your your black and white world doesn't exist. It's not here. I mean, that's why both both those scenes really got to me in a deep way. The taking off the makeup was just amazing, and his putting on the makeup. I, I you know, I, be, because we live in a place like Baltimore. You said something in there. You said it just now, which was yellow face. Mm -hmm. I never thought about that to this moment, till you said it. But I now as you said it, I went oh. Yeah, I can absolutely, I can feel and see that. There's another layer here that I bet you most people who are not of any kind of Asian extraction would even think about. Right. Because we don't, right? I, to play devil's advocate, yeah. um, I think that in a way it's somewhat empowering that this white man had to put the yellow face on so that he could feel what everyone else was feeling. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So I kind of can play with it that way, but I can see at the same time to where you're like, oh, you know. Well, yeah, <laughs> and I think that's where context comes in, exactly. right? Because context yeah. comes in, in and, and I was saying before, you know, the words are inevitable. Like right. this was actually written in the play. David Henry Huang put it in there. Yeah. And the reason why he put it in there is because the stereotype of M. Butterfly is dying. Yeah. And I mean, you know, going back to the whole idea of context, you know, the story of M. Butterfly is a story that was written by a white guy. Exactly. You know, it's a short story written by an American um, writer, and it was developed into an opera by an Italian guy. Mm -hmm. And now we have M. Butterfly, which is written by an Asian American playwright, but it's still being told from the perspective of a white, white guy. guy. Yeah. And so context is everything. And I think, you know, 
and, and that's why I grapple with it. You know, right. for me, it's so easy to be angry. Like for me personally, anger is my go-to emotion. Like right. I'm <laughs> sitting there like, oh my God, I'm so infuriated. I can't believe that they would do that. And then I'm walking out and I'm just like, okay, so why am I so angry? I have to think about yeah. this. And it takes it takes me a longer moment to to try and be honest with myself and acknowledge why I'm so angry. And what and and you know, I, I, you gotta hand it to the playwright because he knew what he was doing, and I don't think that we would be having this conversation if he didn't purposefully right. put that controversial image in there. And he knew, I think, to some degree, and again, you know, this is a play that was written in the 80s, so again, context. Right. But so I, how I does think, that, yeah. How does that make you different than the last thing you just said? For all of you, play written in the 80s. How does that change the context? Well, I mean, also, I think play, what was happening in theater in the 80s, that was around the time that Miss Saigon came out, too, mm -hmm. you know? And that was a huge issue. But again, for me, Miss Saigon was like my, I loved Miss Saigon because that was, <laughs> I, I was Filipino growing up in America. My two idols in entertainment were Lea Salonga and Rufio. So, you know, like, so, you know, those are the only two Filipino idols I had. And it wasn't until I was older that I went, wait a second, Miss Saigon, this is really controversial. And I don't know how to feel. And I, I feel really conflicted in admitting that I love this musical, but I also know I should be really offended by it. Um, and I think that that's allowed. And I think, you know, when you put this play in context of everything else that was going on in art, as well as in the States itself mm -hmm. in the 80s, that puts another kind of layer to that because it's being produced now. And right. I think, you know, there are a lot of things that are happening in that play that could be considered a commentary, but also I think the reason why it's easy to get offended by it now is because it's still happening, I think. Right. Yeah, he, I mean, the, the time in which the play was written was a time in which Reagan wouldn't say the word AIDS before 40,000 gay men had already died of it. Um, and and putting it in uh, putting it in a show um, in this way is was a political move in that moment and in that time. But now, like you said, it's a different type of cultural commentary. Yeah. I literally Gavin? was about to say almost <laughs> the exact same thing. I'm sorry. No, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, and I I don't want to backtrack too much. But I just I don't know why this just hit me too. But. I think, too, is uh, this white man mentality. We have this, um, and even talking about, you know, they were talking about um, almost women as trophies, mm. you know, and not only that, when you think about butterflies, a lot of people actually collect them. And, you know, it literally was a trophy for him, and he oftentimes, you know, I'm, I'm, this is like literally playing in my head to where he became the trophy mm. and then he actually stuck that pin mm. into his own heart and you know he, he basically found himself and that just I don't know why I went all the way back there but yeah that's I truly feel like that that was that's what I got out of it or that's why I, I just now got out of it even though I saw it last week <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to go out here right now against the audience, but that, that it was also harpooning the contradictions of the original writers of this piece and that white male perspective on this is what he was trying to do, I think, as well. And I think that did that because that made it, com make it yeah. complex. And I think that that's... Um, that European colonialist mentality that kind of was built into this whole thing from the very beginning 
<laughs> was skewered. Anybody else want to say something? Do we have folks back there and over here? All right, so first of all, thank you very much. Thank you to the Everyman Theater for putting on this play because, uh, yeah, it is. I mean, it's a shocking piece of work, which I appreciate. Um, so, yeah, so the, the first part of it really hit me because I've been thinking a lot about my own mother. I actually come from, I'm a third generation, like, well, se I guess second generation mixed race Asian American. My grandfather's Korean, um, grandmother's English Canadian, and then my dad is, you know, deep like Indiana German and then and then my mom is you know it was the Hawaiian say like hapa haole and the so I've always growing up there was um, and then also I just turned out to be gay which is like pick a thing but uh, but yeah I mean yeah so but the one of the things that I have been uh, learning about is the connections between like uh, the desexualization of of Asian American men and the hyper sexualization of of uh, of Asian American women and of course you know yin and yang where where one is reduced the other must expand but also the fact that Asian American women are sexualized specifically because of the history of uh, war rape and I mean yeah as a I, one one of the scenes where I really like I really perked up was um you know the first thing that uh, butterfly says is uh is basically like oh you you know uh, my people it's funny that you say that I'm a great Japanese woman because they did you know medical experiments on us constantly you know and uh, so yeah I mean thinking about with Korean women as well the comfort women a lot of Filipinos I mean 10% of the Philippine population was decimated so it, although it's interesting to frame this as like West versus mm -hmm. as East there's also the context of the Japanese but and anyway that's just a lot of thoughts I have. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's just a lot of thoughts I have. Well, let's start with one of them. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it gets the other one too, so you, you raise a lot of stuff, which is really good. So, I mean, let's start with the, 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 this perception I think that comes out in this play as well, which is that the, the, um, what we've done to the Asian community, men and women, with the desexualization and sexualization. That was really a very, very important point, so, among your others as well. So, what do you think about that? and how this maybe manifested itself or didn't. You know, it's so funny because um, talking about the hypersexualization of Asian and Asian American women, I was, the, the scene where he's taking his makeup off, so I'm reading this book right now on Asian American history and there's actually, historically, um, uh, the States has a history of actually putting Asian women on display. And there's actually a character, in, there a person, I shouldn't say a character, an individual in history named Afong, I think Afong Moy or Afong Mei, and she was labeled as the beautiful Chinese woman. And she was put on display in essentially a freak show with her bound feet, and she was instructed to converse with the audience in Chinese, and she had a, a translator and everything. And she had her little staging area, which was basically a Chinese saloon. And that's how she made her money, and then she went on tour, and then eventually she got replaced by another younger Chinese woman, and hi historically we have no idea what happened to her after that. So that scene actually for me, knowing that history of Asian American culture, I was like, hmm, this is very familiar. And I, I wonder too if that's something that he was actually trying to comment on, was putting that part of our history on display and where that hypersexualization of Asian and Asian American women come from. It's not just, you know, 
the war rape that happened, but I think also it's just inherently in our, this particular culture of, well, you're different, you're exotic, and therefore we want to look at you. And I think I, I, I did kind of think about that and wondered if that was what he was sort of trying to hint at. Yeah. Anybody else want to leap in? No? So, and I think that, 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 that you also kind of raised some of the issues that I think came out. There was the political issue of, of uh, that he raised inside that play. It wasn't just European colonization, it was all the rest of it kind of came in there as well. And I think there is, you know, in, in our culture, in the West, there is a diminution of male Asian sexuality. I mean, that is, you know, I mean, th that happens all the time. Mm -hmm. You hear, we th you think about how men talk about women, which is kind of this universal thing that goes on. You hear a lot from white men talking about, well, why would she be with him? Aren't they small? Serious. Right. That is what, right. what we do in this culture. You know, and I think that's something that uh, wasn't necessarily in this play, I'm glad it was brought out because I think it's important. Here and then here. Come on, then we'll, then we'll come right over here. Hi, um, I first of all, thank you all for talking about it, but I did really um, think a lot about the, the conversations about Asian masculinity because my partner is an Asian man and like a lot of that conversation um, hits him a lot still as growing up and having to show himself as more of a man because of that but also in conversations um, also with women in that like, sorry. Um, right. Like my, um, my very good friend of mine that I've grown up with, um, there was a scene um, talking about how if, you, if a man, if a woman wasn't able to give a child to a son, a son, it like brought up conversations of my very close friend who recently like had her father leave her family because her um, she has three sisters and her mother like didn't give her this like child and she's a, she's Chinese and like just having those conversations in this play were very like I just wanted to punch them really badly yeah, yeah like I was just like oh my god this makes me so angry because like my my friends like she feels like she has to prove herself as an Asian woman in that sense of like losing her father in that conversation. And I don't know, it's just one of those things that I was like, oh, this makes me so mad because I like, oh, I feel that pain. Good. Yeah, thank you. Thoughts? I agree, it's, 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 not, it's not necessarily just Asian, but you know, at the same time, you know, saying the same thing about, and uh, this is crazy that my mom literally just texted me, so that's like, <laughs> makes me want to cry as well because she sent me a picture from my childhood and the thing is is my mom felt um that she did something wrong because i was gay you know and um my stepfather was in the army and my um you know my dad was this foreman that built you know naval ships and um he wanted me to play football and i was like well i can't because my heels will get caught in the dirt and um <laughs> so you know, and I, I, part of me also feels, you know, to where um, I was never good enough because I didn't live up to expectations that other people had for me. However, 
um, I hold myself, I have higher expectations than anybody could ever have for me. And the thing is, is just to sit there and be proud of who you are and what makes you different is makes you one of the most beautiful people on the face of the planet, regardless of what you can give to anyone else is what you have to give to yourself, you know, and I love that. <laughs> Good afternoon. I hope to see you uh, out of Towson University, where I'm also attending as a theater student. For Mr. Robert, is there any correlation you can make with Pagliacci's application of his makeup and at the end of the opera, the clown laughs no more? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. That's really amazing, actually. <laughs> um, I kind of like, I love what you said, the clown laughs no more. It's like it's, 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 it's over with, it's finished, you know? Um, who, who honestly got the last laugh in all of this? And it, what truly happens is that the, the, the minority literally was the one that was walking away vindicated, uh, almost in a way, you know? Um, I, I, I don't know, I'm like stumped. And it's really hard for me not to be able to speak. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I like that. I'm going to really, truly think about that. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, come on up. I got it, come on. Um, one of the things that really stood out for me in the play was how Butterfly had these really sort of biting things to say about whiteness. Um, yet she was with a white man the whole time. Um, one of the things that I've sort of noticed, like, especially in the gay community with Asian men, is like they're never with other Asian men. They're always with white men, and all their friends are white. So can you talk about, like, why that exists here in this culture? Whoa. And it's not just Asian. It's African-American as well. You know, there's African, I know African-American men that will not date a white or Caucasian or anybody that's not what they are, you know, um, because it feels like it's somewhat of a downgrade, you know, and I, I get what you say, and it's truly, it's ignorance, you know, people oftentimes, we look on the outside, and we sit there, and we judge people based on the binding of their book, however, we don't sit there and give the opportunity to actually open the pages and read what truly is inside, and it's very, you know, it's disheartening, you know, because um, you're, you're truly going to miss out on something amazing just because you're ignorant. You know, I think also, too, because the topic of, of, you know, mixed race relationships, of course, is going to come up. Um, I'm in I'm in a mixed race relationship myself. Um, and, and it never dawned on like I, I, it took somebody else to point it out to me um, when I was in probably 18 or 19. And I, I never thought about it. Um, someone actually came up to me and was like, have you ever been with a black guy? And I was like, no. And he, it was like he was trying to prove a point. And then throughout my adult life, people kept pointing out the race of the people that I was dating. And I was just like, I don't understand why this matters. And it, it made me have to self-reflect on the reasons why. And I found myself trying to justify my choices, right. which I feel is, uh, you know, I think that that's a little bit unfair. 
Um, you know, there's a, a variety of reasons why a person might date outside of their own race. You know, there's a variety of reasons why somebody would, would be attracted to anyone at any given moment. Um, you know, we could talk about, you know, where you were raised. You know, if I was raised in the Philippines, I would probably end up marrying a Filipino guy because that's the population is Filipinos. But I was raised here. And so here I have a little bit more of a diverse kind of so uh, social circle. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like that's such a deep and complex question. Um, and it's a question that's been coming up a lot in my own personal life. Mm -hmm. And it makes the topic of race so much more, I think, complicated too. Because on one hand, I'm like, well, why does it even matter? Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, I'm like, well, I get why it does. And so, you know, I think that that's, I feel like that's a table discussion. I feel like that's like a yeah. discussion you have over dinner and drinks yeah, without getting yeah. too drunk, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, too, it's that whiteness is always operating in silence and as normalized. Mm -hmm. um, so I went to the doctor and I had a black doctor. We don't go, I went to the doctor and I had a white doctor. <laughs> I just had a doctor, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so... And so whiteness is coded in that way as, as normal, as everything already there. Um, and so when a person um, who identifies as Asian is asked that question, I, I'm not asked that question because whiteness is already always present. Um, and so that's, how, that's where our experiences diverge. Um, the, it, it's it's coded and silent in a way where people of color are forced to talk about race and forced to always, always already have race present where people who are white don't have to have those It's like understood. Yeah, yeah, it's understood. It's already there. And also, I had a very international family growing up. Like, I have cousins that are half Scottish, half Filipino. I have cousins that live in Canada. I have cousins that live in Australia. Like, my, my immediate circle, both familial and um, social, it was very diverse. And so the topic of race honestly never came up for me until other people kept insisting that I pay attention to it yeah. to the point where now my best friend who's half Korean, half American is like, God, race is such an issue for you. And I'm just like, I blame the world for this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, th I think that again in the play, that the lines in the play do attack the blindness of whiteness. Yeah. Exactly, even when, right? when he said, um, um, find me a baby and make sure he has blonde hair and blue eyes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, you know, that's, it's, I was like, oh, that's going to, yeah, that's fantastic. Go ahead and do that. But, um, <laughs> so, and a, but at the same time, a boy nonetheless. I mean, he was talking to the Chinese, um, you know, the, the pro, um, the Mao. But that's what she, that's and what so he thought he would want. Right. But, but the blonde, the, yeah. But he had to, you know, he, he was, but it was all part of his using right. this white guy as, you know, uh, to get information uh, for the Chinese government. But still get him and a boy that has blonde hair and blue well, eyes. Well, the because it was to be convincing. Be convincing yeah. that it, he was the father. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a. I agree. Boy. I I so was like, genetics doesn't work like that, honey. <laughs> like, that boy's going to come out oh, looking right. like you. <laughs> so w one of the things we wrestled with in there, from interesting perspectives here, how you would have looked and even staged this differently. You all had some really interesting ideas. 
uh, about what might have been different here and what how you how the a playwright's words or a playwright's words and every director and every actor manipulates those words with their interpretations. Mm -hmm. You might see this directed in very different ways in other places. I happen to like this a lot, um, but you know there are there are different ways to perceive what those words mean, especially in 2017. So how would you? Let's, let's, it'd be interesting to kind of explore this. And you explored it back there. We should explore it out here. I, I think I mentioned it a little bit. I. I like how it was staged here. Um, I, I think there are some other interpretations of the way you can, um, the words are words, but words are also very fluid um, and have lots of different um, ways to conjure meaning behind them. And it would have been interesting to sort of mark that front stage backstage in a way that was more fluid, um, again, sort of maybe having a camera for that screen following song backstage and letting us see the process, letting it see, uh, and, and you mentioned <coughs> this too, a, a larger contextual development of that character um, throughout the course of the show. Would it have been distracting? Yes, but it also brings the audience um, to another space, another place, knowing that, that theater isn't always real life. Um, and that it reflects something um, for all of us. So yeah, so increase those um, effects to blur the lines between real life um, and the sociality that we experience and theater <laughs> and what that means. Yeah, and I think you know everyone's a critic. Everyone's yeah. always gonna watch something and wonder how they would have done it differently. For me, I think because I was so shocked by the, um, by the yellow face aspect for me, that's how I labeled it. Um, so you know, I was I was trying to think of ways around that for me because for for me, on, in my personal perspective, that was that was hard for me to swallow. I think, and I was like, well, what if they had him do more more of a silhouette? What if he was still wearing a robe? but that image of M. Butterfly wasn't depicted until there was a light shining on him and you see the shadow back there and he looks like M. Butterfly in all of his garb. And that still would have made the same symbolic <laughs> element, you know? It still would have shown the image of M. Butterfly, but it's not real. You know, it's only, it, it can only exist when he is there and then when he dies, that shadow dies too. And so, you know, I think everyone's gonna have their ideas of how to produce it. Um, and, you know, we're always gonna try and, and yeah, everyone's a critic, but <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I thought that would have been cool. Um, but then again, you know, I do see what the purpose was in doing that. I, um, I take everything the way that it's given to me. Um, if is a huge, what if, you know, if is the biggest word for only being two letters. I thoroughly enjoyed it because it made me think. Um, and somebody that I, pride myself on being a person that's gone through quite a bit, you know, to even force me to one, feel uncomfortable, totally okay with it, to feel excited, um, to feel heartbroken at the same time, you know, when, um, you know, song was getting, you know, beat, you know, basically. You know, um, I don't think that I would have changed anything, and I truly appreciate the way that the director did it. You know, I, I appreciate it very much, though. So I think we'd, we'd be remiss if we, I'd like to kind of close this out in some ways, unless somebody really wants to leap up and say something important because it's getting late. What, just a second? <laughs> I'm, 
I suspect it's my age, but you guys are this 80s, 80s. I don't think that was so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't so long ago. It, I was born in the 80s, man. Like, something that <laughs> was 100 years ago or whatever. I don't think there's been all that many great changes, maybe more maybe more discussion. Socially, there's been a lot of yeah, changes. And well, more, I mean, when you say acceptance, it's more open, but there's still people that are not accepting any more than they did then. Absolutely. So you're sort of saying it's such an antiquated story from the 80s. It's that whole baby boomers <laughs> versus millennials <laughs> thing, right? <laughs> Yeah, I, c I can relate to that. I so think that, but I think that's also that's relevant because I think then you know if you want to consider it a period piece, you can. But the '80s wasn't that long ago because that's when I was born, and I'm not that old. So, <laughs> and so you know the question is how relevant is this because it's still current, right. and I think right. that that's the issue too. You know. So to round this up, I want to wrap it up with this, with what we walk away with in terms of the gender-bending aspects of this play, which we talked a little bit on the very beginning. But, you know, given, I think that's an important place to end up in many ways because this was, I think, besides the issue of race and racism and the whiteness, it was gender-bending in, in all of its strangeness what people have to deal with and audiences who don't know how to deal with it. Not saying this audience didn't, but some didn't. Um, what we walk away with what these characters said to us in that realm. I mean, I don't want to be cliche, but I, I, but I will. Um, I just, I think that theater in this way um, is instructive and offers us a vehicle for social change and understanding. Yeah, the 80s weren't that long ago, and yeah, there's a lot of um, people who are transphobic and homophobic that exist in this world that we meet every day on the street. And putting on a show like this um, still helps maybe, and I hate the word tolerance because I tolerate a mosquito sometimes <laughs> flying around me, um, but I still don't like mosquitoes, um, which is why that word tolerance bothers me. Um, but, but maybe offering a moment of perspective for theater goers um, outside of a comfort zone. Um, and, and, and so I appreciate that. Um, in in the in the staging um, and the script. Yeah, and it's funny you say the word tolerance because I was listening to um, something that was talking about tolerance and something that it, it said was tolerance is the bare minimum. Yeah. Like that is that is the bare minimum of culture of society of interacting with human beings as a fellow human being. Right. And the difficulty is how do we get past tolerance to understanding, to empathy, to mm -hmm. sympathy? Um, yeah, and you know, I, I, I think that that's important and I really do think that that's, for me personally, um, a huge takeaway with this particular production and all of the ideas that come with it, all the themes that it comes with, um, including gender bending, you know, that gender still exists, yeah. um, unfortunately. You know, I, I'm, I'm about to get married, but I don't want kids. And that's like a big deal when it's like, oh, well, everyone assumes that's the next step. And I ha I'm constantly faced with the fact that gender still exists. And, you know, then the question is why and how and is it even possible to get around it? I, um, gender is so, uh, 
it's we try to make it so black and white, but it truly isn't. For instance, um, my sister-in-law is pregnant, and um, you know, during the baby shower, you have this uh, sex of the baby, how mm-hmm. whether it's pink or blue balloons, and um, I think it's the most heinous thing that you could possibly do because you're literally telling that child what it should be. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is that's where it all starts and where just because somebody's sex may be male or female doesn't mean that their gender is the exact same of what's on the outside. And uh, what I hope that you can truly understand is that you know, no matter what parts you have, um, it's all about how you feel on the inside, and 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 not to judge people just based solely on what's between their legs, but what's between their, you know, between their shoulders. And um, I I I truly appreciate you know all of this, and I appreciate even to be um, able to speak from the you know. LGBTQ community, um, and I have a trans daughter that I really wanted to be here, and um, her mother is one of the most amazing individuals, was just named Volunteer of the Year for PFLAG, and um, she's a huge inspiration for me because even as a gay male and somebody that took hormones in um, when I was first starting in the art form of female impersonation, I don't get it. You know, I tell myself all the time, and I'm try- without being too vulgar, you know, if I woke up with breasts and a penis, I'd be upset, you know, but at the same time, that's not okay for me, but it doesn't mean that just because that's the journey that somebody else is going on that it's wrong. And, um, and I end one of my shows, uh, I end my shows and I say, you know, if you leave here and if you've had a good time, And if you're going to leave here with a smile, I want you to scream and yell, and everybody does. And I said, my ultimate goal is that you sit there and you go out onto the sidewalk and share that with a stranger because you never know the journey that somebody's going through. And it's my ultimate hope that you take what was put on that stage and not just let it just sit on the outside of your mind, but let it strung um, the strings of your heart and go and take it to a much deeper and emotional level. Thank you. So I want to thank Gavin Colby. That's Dr. the most clap I've ever had. Pardon? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So let's thank Gavin Colby Aber, Dr. Desiree Rowe, and Corey DiOquino for being here today. Thank you all three so much. Thank you. Thank you. And this is Mark Steiner, folks. I want to thank you for joining our podcast today. The show is produced and edited by Calvin Perry. Uh, you can download it at steinershow.org or from your favorite podcasting app. Let your friends know. And let us know what you think. Write me directly at mark, M-E-R-C, at steiner, S-T-E-I-N-E-R, show.org. Mark at steinershow.org. And we'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new podcast. <laughs>